Hello, and welcome to Let's Farmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Cal Vandergriff. I'm Justin Frederick. I'm Shane Garrettson, and today we're talking about the 1904 Olympic Marathon. All that and more on Let's Farmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. Let's get ready. Gentlemen, today I plan to tell you a story. Hang on. Gotta start over. <laughs> no, <laughs> you can't eat into the microphone. That is forbidden. <laughs> I'm sorry. Gentlemen, today... I plan to tell you a story. A story of a sporting event so flawed, so malicious, that it nearly cost some their lives. This is arguably the worst thing to ever happen in all of sports. Today we're going to talk about the 1904 Olympic Marathon. In full disclosure, this episode was inspired by an episode of Pretty Good, a YouTube series starring and directed by John Boyd. So John, if you have somehow stumbled your way into the podcast universe and come across this episode of Let's Farmanize, thank you. The link to his video will be the top link in the description. And with that, let's get into today's tale. The 1904 Olympics were conducted in St. Louis, Missouri in the middle of summer. Now for those who may have never visited St. Louis in the middle of summer as I have, you may be unaware of how freaking hot it gets. And on this fateful day, August 30th, 1904, it was estimated that the temperature was nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit. To put this into perspective, the average marathon temperature is somewhere between 45 and 60 degrees. If the race hasn't started and the temperature is over 70 degrees, considerations to postpone the event usually take place. But in 1904, that didn't matter. Apparently. Let's set the scene of this race. The marathon was to start and finish at Francis Field, which included a quarter-mile track that the participants were to run around several times before leaving the stadium to begin their 24.5-mile trek across St. Louis's busy dirt roads before making a loop and returning to Francis Field, to which the winner would eventually be crowned. Placed around the 12-mile mark was a water well, the one and only source of water for the runners at this event. The water inside said well was as dirty as water can be to deem it drinkable, and many of the runners would have intestinal problems from it after the race. Now, elite marathon runners can usually win their race today if they finish somewhere a little after the two-hour mark. To find yourself somewhere in the middle of the pack, you may see your time somewhere around the three-hour mark. Naturally, running equipment was not what it is today and their times were usually slower as a result in the past. The 1912 Olympic marathon winner's time was just over two and a half hours. Not bad, I certainly couldn't do that. But what time do you think the winner of this race finished at? Of this one in 1904? Of this one in 1904. Five hours. I'm gonna guess two hours and 45 minutes. Okay, there was a gross under and overestimation. It was nearly four hours. Okay, yep. <laughs> so right in between. So balance Somewhere it out. Yeah. yeah, it was perfect median. To this day, it is the longest time it has taken an Olympic runner to finish an event and still win the race. Now let's take some time to meet our heroes of the story. John Lorden, a famous runner at the time who had won the Boston Marathon a year prior, stands at the starting line. Many consider him to be the favorite to win this race. William Garcia, a 27-year-old American runner, was seen as the fan favorite of today's race. Len Tanyane, a South African runner, was sponsored by one of the 14 other countries to send athletes to the Olympics this year, and was one of the first two black athletes to ever compete in an Olympic event. 
Felix Carvajal, a Cuban-born runner who made his money showing off his running abilities in his home country. Now let me stop here and tell you that this man is a living legend. Carvajal once ran the entire length of Cuba. That's 700 miles. What? <laughs> wow. And this was just for some cash. Just wanted to make some money, showing off what he could do. Naturally, Felix didn't have a lot of money and wasn't even invited by the Olympic Committee to attend today's race. This didn't stop Carvajal as he saved up enough money for seafare and made it all the way to New Orleans, three weeks before the event was to start. Now Felix, who had never seen a city like New Orleans before, decided to spend a night on the town before using the money he had left to catch a bus to St. Louis. He would wind up losing all of his money in a craps game. So flat broke, 700 miles from Francis Field, and in a country he had never been to before, Felix decided to do the one thing he was good at. He decided to run. From hitchhiking to running all day and night, Carvajal made the trek all the way to St. Louis and arrived the day before the run was to start. Jeez Louise. Oh my God. And he's about to do this again? This man is something. <laughs> well, I mean, he's doing 700 miles around Cuba. So, I mean, in comparison, talk about 24 miles holes with a marathon. That would probably be like nothing to him. Seems like nothing. If anyone's got the endurance, it might be him. Amongst the very white people in the finest running equipment that 1904 had to offer, there was Felix. In a long sleeve shirt, a beret, heavy cargo shorts, long johns underneath, and hiking boots. His, well, shirt, his shorts weren't even shorts, by the way, until a fellow racer told him there was no way he could run in those. What was the temperature on the day of the race? Like about 100 degrees. Probably more than 100 degrees. <laughs> He's wearing cargo shorts yeah. and a long sleeve shirt. That weren't even cargo shorts when he showed up. They found a pair of scissors and fashioned him a pair of shorts on the spot. They were pants. I'm surprised he didn't pass out. And he had long johns on there. And he had long too. johns underneath. I'm surprised he didn't boots. pass Running out from the heat. <laughs> Just standing. This man is a legend. Our final two notable participants are Fred Lors and Thomas Hicks. Lors, an up-and-coming runner who would go on to win the 1905 Boston Marathon. And Thomas Hicks, a relatively unknown runner who brought a team of five men to follow him as his coaches in a car directly behind him during the race. Okay, that's all the notables of today's 41 participants. So that's it. You know the players in this game. You've probably picked out a runner to root for. Now, it's finally time to start the race. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Do you like your prescriptions to be ready when you get to the store? Do you enjoy the feeling of a smiling face looking back out at you from the drive-thru window? Do you feel the urge to just hug your pharmacy team as hard as you can until their lungs collapse? Do you like seeing the pain of those around you slowly consume their worthless, pathetic lives? Do you like the sound of teeth clenching together through our fake, corporate-mandated smiles? Do you enjoy watching the fear and utter terror of your presence encapsulate a human being? Walgreens, we know you'd settle for less. The 
The runners begin their multi-lap jog, hearing the many fans who decided to attend the race. John Lorden, the famous runner and former Boston Marathon winner, takes an early lead. He finishes his run around the track before anyone else. He's got a big lead, and he knows this race is his to win. After leaving the track, Lorden begins sprinting out onto Forsyth Boulevard. The wind at his back, no one is going to catch him today. Until two blocks later when he starts vomiting profusely and decides to quit the race. William Garcia, the American fan favorite, takes the lead after. After a brutal 19 miles, Garcia is exhausted. He stopped for a quick drink at the swamp water well before continuing on. <laughs> As cars pass by the runner kicking up dust from the dirt roads, Garcia is in trouble. But he is on pace to win the event, so he just keeps going. About 20 minutes later, a fellow racer comes upon Garcia. He is face down in a pool of his own blood coming directly from his mouth. It turns out having cars race past runners on dirt roads is not ideal conditions for a race. William Garcia's stomach and esophageal lining had eroded to the point that he could not continue. He was rescued by a passing car and was taken to the hospital immediately. I take you back to Francis Field. It's been almost four hours since the start, and fans are getting antsy. This is when, out of the shroud of dust-covered road, comes Fred Lors, the future Boston Marathon winner. He has emerged victorious and has crowned the champion. Right behind him is Thomas Hicks and his team of coaches. Hicks is visibly distraught. His gait is wavering, and he's being carried to the finish line by two of his coaches. And seeing the sight of Lors being crowned champion causes him to collapse into his trainer's arms as soon as he crosses the finish line. But more on them in a minute. So now let's talk about the guy we wanted to talk about, Felix Carvajal. Mm -hmm. Our Cuban running enthusiast, who has just finished a 700-mile run of his own just to be here, is having the time of his life. He is used to the treacherous conditions and is ahead of the pace. Around mile 16, Carvajal sees an apple orchard. Now I have to stop here, and, and I have to say that John Boy and I are in agreement. This next part is just too stupid to be true. I don't believe it. This, <laughs> it. There's no way it could happen. Carvajal approaches the apple orchard and picks two apples to eat. Turns out he hadn't eaten anything in some time, and he was starving. He quickly wolfed down the apples. The fruit didn't sit very well in his stomach, and they turned out to be rotten. Not feeling well, Carvajal lied down and took a nap. When he awoke, he felt much better than before and continued his run. He was shocked to find that when he returned to Francis Field, he had finished in fourth place. I don't believe it. I'm sorry. There's it, no way a man stops in the middle of a marathon, <laughs> takes a nap, and he still finishes fourth. I'm, I'm still on the fact of, am I hearing the story of the 1904 Olympics or the tortoise and the hare? <laughs> it's straight like, out of ASA. I've, I've ran track and field for seven years. I was a sprinter, but I've done my fair share of long distance 800s and once a two mile, and that sucked. <laughs> I know but about that. being a runner, my point is there can't be any way that in the middle of a race you're going to say, you know what? I'm hungry. Here's some apples. I'm going to eat it. Oh, they didn't sit well. Let me take a nap in the middle of a race. That just can't. I'm sorry. And then he finishes in fourth. I don't believe it. I think that's <laughs> BS. It's the only part. Of this story that I think is just made up. It has to be made up. I'm sorry, that's you. too close to the tours and hair on this one. Like, something must have happened in between. Shane, what do you think? I'm more intrigued by the fact that he ran the 700 miles right prior to this and didn't have, like, lactic acidosis or something. Yeah, he might have. But, I mean, that man I was mean, 
He was fit, I guess. I mean, yeah. if we think about it, he ran 700 miles around Cuba. We don't know. It if was they just did. the length of Cuba. Or he the was length bigger of Cuba. than I thought yeah. it was. It's okay. like the whole Wait, didn't you say that he ran to St. Louis? or where? He ran from New, or- New, Orleans, New Orleans to St. Louis. Yeah, to St. Yeah. Louis. Uh, ran and hitchhiked. And hitchhiked. Right. So, Probably the still, majority hitchhiked. But yeah. still, I mean. As far as lactacidosis, I think it really comes down to your just speaking from my own experience, it really comes down to your conditioning. So if you're used to running like 700 miles, running the distance to from New Orleans to St. Louis, you probably not you probably have some form of lactacidosis, but not enough that it would be impeding on your ability to run tomorrow. Yeah. But just thinking about I don't I mean I can't do the math off the top of my head because yeah. I suck at math. <laughs> but that's like what is three weeks or 20 days in this case mm-hmm. divided by 700 miles? I don't know. Is that 35 miles a day? That sounds right. 35 miles a day? Yeah, Wait, I want to so say it's 35. miles divided by 20 21 days. days. That'd be th- 20 35. Because the day before. Yeah, about 34, 35. 35. 35 miles. So that had to have been hitched. There's no way this man is running marathons every single day to get to... But still, he's a legend. <laughs> he finished in fourth I, place. I still give him credit for still finishing in fourth place. That To me, the way I see that is how bad in terms of these conditions, cause these runners to be that slow that a man could literally take a nap and still finish in fourth. Yeah. You'll find out later that finishing in fourth place is relative considering how many people finish Exactly. The race. You said 41 at the <laughs> beginning, but due to yeah. these conditions, I'm like, what's the actual total of people who finished? And you'll find out. <laughs> so let's keep going, though, because we have a couple more people to talk about. Len Tanyane, a hopeful South American runner who became one of the first two black athletes to compete in the Olympics. The other one, by the way, I forget his name, but he was also in this race. Wait, what did you say? The... Where did you say Len Tanyane was from? South Africa. Okay, you said South American. Oh, I'm sorry. South <laughs> Africa. That's what I meant. South okay. Africa. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was actually the, him and I forget the other guy's name. Mm-hmm. I, I hate it. It's, his last name starts with a W. But anyways, they were the first two black athletes to ever complete, compete in the Olympics. Yeah, that's why this and story kind of sounded familiar to me because I remember those, those hearing about those two in high school. So anyways, Tanyane was a good runner. He was invited to the Olympics. He was also run off the course by a full mile when a pack of feral dogs chased him down an alleyway. He finished in ninth place. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he ran a mile out of the way. Came back, ninth place. And with that, we're back to Fred Lors and Thomas Hicks. We already know who won the race, so that should be it. The worst ever sporting event known to man concludes with a man who looks unusually fit after a 25-mile race with a medal around his neck, standing next to a man who is twitching, reeks of alcohol, and is babbling incoherently. Nothing more to see here. Thanks for listening. Here's the real story. (laughs) Around the sixth mile in the race, Fred Lors can't take the sweltering heat any longer. He tells his coaches he just can't go on. He's losing speed and watching as other runners like Thomas Hicks pass him in the race. So he decides to quit. He hops in the streetcar following him, and they all leave the racetrack. Hicks, the now leader of this race, is passing by the water well. He decides to have a drink, naturally. But much to his surprise, one of his coaches stops him. This man is Charles J.P. Lucas. Lucas, an author of the book from this race, the one and only book depicting the events of this race, uh, was the coach of Thomas Hicks. He is also the dumbest person to ever live. Instead of drinking water... Lucas sponges over Hicks with water, but chooses not to let him drink. 
thinking it will slow him down, of course. Instead, he gives Hicks raw egg whites Mm. and actual rat poison. Now, we as pharmacy students were taught about rat poison having warfarin in it, and that is partially true. It actually contains brodificum, brodificum, a super warfarin that acts significantly longer and binds much more selectively to vitamin K. Lucas never mentions why he used rat poison for Hicks, but warfarin wasn't around back then. And the only thing I can think of as to why he would use this for his runner is that he believed giving Hicks an anticoagulant would thin the blood to the point where pure, dust-ridden oxygen would be the only thing coursing through his veins. But this obviously doesn't work. Warfarin and warfarin analogs work specifically as a blood thinner and have no benefits to increase levels of oxygen in the blood. When when Lucas realized the rat poison isn't working, he does the unthinkable. He gives Hicks two doses of strychnine. Long-time listeners may remember a couple different episodes where I have mentioned strychnine. Or in those days when I didn't know anything, I I pronounced it strychnine. In our look into the movie Gladiator, we talked about how strychnine was given to the fighters as some sort of stimulant. Now, Dr. Sidney McElroy, co-host of the Sawbones podcast, referred to strychnine once as a super caffeine. This is because strychnine works as a glycine receptor antagonist. It's a competitive inhibitor of glycine, which tells the nerves in your body when not to fire. It's kind of like the off switch of a nerve, of a nerve signaling. You can understand glycine's usefulness in the human body. You can also understand the damage this may cause to your nerves and muscles if strychnine is given to a human being. Uncontrollable muscle contraction, rhabdomyolysis, and cardiac arrest, just to name a few. The lethal dose of strychnine in which 100%, LD100, of any given population will die from strychnine is about one milligram per kilogram. The dose of strychnine that Lucas gave was 1 30th of a grain. This is about two milligrams. Hicks weighs about 54 kilograms. This means that over the course of the race, Hicks consumes enough strychnine to kill a small baby. It's the 20th mile, and Hicks can barely move. His muscles are contracting all over his body, causing extremely painful muscle cramps. Lucas still refuses to give him water, but old Charlie has one more trick up his sleeve. In his book regarding the race, Lucas refers to brandy as a stimulant that can loosen up a runner to becoming more successful. (laughs) Brandy and alcohol in general are the furthest things from stimulants. I can't stress that enough. And adding brandy to an already dehydrated man with potentially deadly medicines in him. Including rat poison. Including rat poison. (laughs) This would be a terrible decision for Hicks's liver and overall well-being. Lucas gives him the entire bottle. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hey, he getting lit today. Pour it up. He's so dehydrated, Hicks decides to drink all of it. He begins to hallucinate. Nice. Hey. Although only a mile away, Hicks believes that he is 20 miles from the finish line. Jeez. Oh, wow. His hope is starting to unravel. Then they see a man running towards them. This man is Fred Lors. Looking as spry as ever as he effortlessly passes Hicks and his team. Deflated, Hicks collapses to the ground. In an effort to re-stimulate his runner, Lucas approaches a St. Louis man, who just so happened to be at the scene. This man decides to go into his home, go into his liquor cabinet, and get out a second bottle of brandy. 
Right on. Lucas gives this to Hicks and tells him to keep going. Somehow, Hicks continues. Hicks is almost done for. His trainers are essentially carrying him to the stadium. He doesn't know where he is. The trainers hear word that Lors may be disqualified, so they just continue to push their runner. Finally, Thomas Hicks crosses the finish line, just in time to see Lors being crowned the winner. You see, Fred Lors did decide in the sixth mile to quit the race because of dehydration. They decide to drive back down to the racetrack, Lors and his team, to gather all of their belongings, when all of a sudden, their car breaks down. Not wanting to wait for hours until the car is fixed, Lors decides he's feeling better and just continues the race. He is at mile marker 17 and figures he can just joke about this with the other runners when he arrives at Francis Field. But he's shocked to find that the race has not finished and just keeps running into a stadium. To a joyful crowd cheering because they can go back to their normal lives now that Lors has finally finished this race. They cheer and oh boy do they cheer. Lors gives a salute to the crowd and refuses to mention anything to any of the Olympic committee. Behind him comes Thomas Hicks. Exhausted, he finishes the race and is carried to a car to be brought to the hospital. But Thomas's team pitches a fit about Lors' race. Now, if this were me, if I was in Lors' position, I wouldn't have said anything. Marathon running before functional cars and TV crews were notoriously difficult to referee. This is no different. Instead, Lors immediately tells them the truth, which gets him a lifetime ban from the Olympics which would later be rescinded after just a few months in order for him to win the Boston Marathon the next year. Hicks, who passes out in the car, is awoken by his team to find out he was actually the winner of the 1904 Olympic Marathon. And that's it. From feral dogs to rotten apples, tainted water, and a boatload of dangerous medicines, the 1904 Olympic Marathon will be cemented in history as the worst sporting event of all time. I think we need to change the title of this to best sporting event of all time. Is that it? Why isn't there like a slapstick comedy about this? Like this is like the funniest thing. Like it's just insane. What was the best part? Uh, I think the feral dog is just randomly dog. chasing somebody off of the course like a mile. And, and then he still comes back in places like he's pretty respectably. Yeah, he's yeah. ninth place. The uh, apple, the nap, everything. Yeah. So out of the 41 runners in this race, 14 finished the race. Yeah. That was 34%. Mm-hmm. By far the lowest in Olympic marathon history. Yeah. I mean, this could have been like a Monty Python it sketch. Could have been. Like a whole I movie. really think the it could have been. The whole movie just yeah. Monty Pythoning yeah. this event. Uh, they, and they, so here's another thing that I didn't want to include in the script, but I thought I might as well include it. So I found out um, through John Boyce's video and a little bit of research on my own, that there was a man in the Olympic Committee named James Sullivan. James Sullivan, James Sullivan is an asshole. Okay. <laughs> James Sullivan decided he was an anthropologist, part of the Olympic Committee. He decided this race was going to be an experiment. He decides to intentionally not put water resources throughout the course of this race in order to test the human body's capacity against dehydration Hmm. he uses this race as a science experiment like they're rats in a dome rats in a little maze just gives them bog water but instead of cheese they get rat poison rat poison (laughs) only one of them got the the sweet dose of rat poison what was it budeficum 
Yeah, Brodificum. Brodificum. Yeah, Coom, Coomadin. I got it. It made sense. Coom. Yeah. Brodificum. Yeah, that's the, that was what was actually in rat poison. It's some sort of analog. I'm not actually sure of the mechanism. Should have had Ivan on this one. I'm sure he would have known exactly. <laughs> like I've got some in my pocket. Some seven-step <laughs> yeah. mechanism. Yeah. I've been growing that. <laughs> Dude, he was in the garden the other day looking for digitalis plants because he was just going to take some home. He just wanted some digitalis. Yeah, he just wanted some foxglove. I saw him and I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just trying to find some digisum digoxin. Okay, man. Am I trying to poison somebody? I don't know. Hey, you made it. Thanks for listening to the show. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get updates on when we post new content. Also, go check out our website at www.letsfarmonize.com for blog content and old episodes. Finally, a special thanks to Kelly Kerr for creating the music for Let's Farmonize.